You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Leslie S. Klinger is the New York Times bestselling editor of the Edgar Award-winning The New Annotated Sherlock Holmes and Other Annotated Books and Anthologies. They are amazing works of published literature. He also co-edited with Laurie R. King the anthologies A Study in Sherlock, the Anthony Award-winning In the Company of Sherlock Holmes and Echoes of Sherlock Holmes. Lori R. King is the author of 25 novels and many other works, including 14 Mary Russell stories, The Memoirs of a Young Woman Who Marries Sherlock Holmes. Lori won the Edgar Award for her first novel, A Grave Talent. Their new book together is Anatomy of Innocence, Testimonies of the Wrongfully Convicted. The book was edited by Laura Caldwell and Leslie Klinger and Lori is one of the contributors. Thank you for joining me, Lori and Les. Thank you. A pleasure. I was thinking today of a man named Paul S. Virilio. He was a French philosopher in the mid-20th century. He came up with this idea of the accident, which is the idea that whenever you invent something, you also invent its accident. So, for example, Henry Ford the greatest inventor of the 20th century for America, is also the author of the greatest slaughter of Americans in automobile accidents over the 20th century, and I think he's probably pretty much in the lead still. We have, (laughs) in 200 years here in America, created an incredible machine. We call it the system of justice. Perhaps there is an accident in that machine as well. And that is why we have the Innocence Project. This is a really amazing project. Uh, Les, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to be involved with this anthology? Well, I think you've said it right, um, that that the justice system has its accidents. But it used to be, uh, first of all, Back in the days when we had divine justice, when, you know, you could cast the runes or something and find out whether somebody was guilty or not, just like with the witches. You know, there couldn't be any mistakes because obviously it was divine. Uh, and that carried over to the human justice system, at least the myth that there were no mistakes, for centuries. Um, to the point where really as recently as the 70s, I think we have judges saying, we can't have mistakes, we have such a perfect system, it's not possible for there to be a mistake. But in fact, it's a human system. And it's a system with uh, human law enforcement officials, uh, human prosecutors, human judges, and human juries. And mistakes happen. Um, this book is is uh, Laura's brainchild. Um, it was a way for us to draw into uh, the community of, of the innocence movement, um, a bunch of friends. Uh, over the years, mystery writers, uh, friends of ours, had said to Laura in particular, uh, and me, how can we help? Um, and Laura said to me, you know, how can you help less? So she came up with the idea of this anthology, and we decided what's unique about it is not telling the stories of wrongfully convicted people, though there are other books that have done that. 
But what's unique is that we paired up wrongfully convicted individuals, who we call exonerees, um, with major thriller mystery writers to better tell their stories so that we could attract attention to the book and to the problem. Um, we also had the idea that rather than try and tell the stories of 15 different people in full, um, it would be better to try and create a composite of the experience of an exoneree, a person who has been wrongfully arrested, gone through a trial, convicted, spent time in prison, ultimately found factually innocent and released from prison and now re-entering society. So each of the chapters in the book covers a different stage of that arc, that, that typical experience. Uh, and we used a different exoneree for each chapter. So for example, the first chapter is the arrest about a woman named Gloria Killian as told to S.J. Roseanne. The second chapter is about David Bates. It's about his interrogation as told to Sarah Paretsky. The third chapter is the trial. Uh, and that's Raymond Towler and his story was told to Lori. And I'll let Lori talk a little bit about that. Lori? Yeah, when, when Les and Laura were trying to set this book up, um, they looked at their 15 writers and their 15 exonerees that they had uh, settled on and tried to come up with the ideal match. That is, um, who is most likely to respond to this particular story? Um, who can dramatize it in a good way, that is to really get to the meat of what this selection of that person's life is about. And um, they, they decided in their wisdom, these are my editors, so I have no idea what, what was behind <laughs> their decisions, but they decided that I would do best with a text. Now, I am a text-based sort of person. My background is dealing with theological texts. I write um, texts, mysteries, and so um, they sent me to do um, Ray Towler's trial. I, of course, asked to see the, uh, the text. I asked to see the transcript of the trial, which took some doing because it was 30 years old and um, not, not exactly something that's on everyone's shelf. And so eventually they, they did get it, and I read my way through it. And I was fascinated by, um, by how, how much story there was in this very thin transcription of dialogue. I mean, there's very little in a court transcript other than the words pronounced um, in, in the course of it. And, um, and yet you could read all of this fascinating, subtle interaction between the defense attorney and the prosecutor and the judge um, and as each one attempts to outmaneuver the other. And I, I mean, I just found it fascinating as a piece of writing and as a thing that condemned a young man to spend 28 years behind bars, um, I, I found it outrageous and, and offensive and um, weirdly inevitable. Les? I was going to say, let me, let's back up a second here and let me try and give you the... 20,000-foot view of, of the problem. So we don't have accurate statistics about the quantity of innocent people in jail, but 
Scholars think it's between 5 and 10% of the prison population. Now, we can be really proud as Americans that we have more people in prison per capita than any other country in the world. We have 2.3 million people in prison. One-third of the women in prisons around the world are American women here in the United States. Um, so we have this enormous prison population. If it's 5% that's innocent, that's 100,000 people languishing in prisons for crimes that they did not commit. We're not talking about people who, with whom there were procedural errors or things like that. We're talking about people who are factually innocent. Um, there is a registry, a national registry of exonerations. Uh, we're now just over the 2,000 mark in terms of the number of people listed in the registry who've been exonerated since uh, 1980, uh, the early 1980s. Uh, and there's some surprises. I mean, one surprise is only 25% of people in the registry have been exonerated by reason of DNA evidence. Um, television, of course, makes it seem like, well, that's got to be the magic bullet and everybody's getting out on DA, DNA. No, um, the more common causes are recanting of, of mistaken witness testimony, uh, witnesses who positively identified somebody as being the killer um, or the rapist or whatever, um, who recanted later because they realized they made a mistake. Uh, in, in one case we were talking about uh, the other day, there were six eyewitnesses, all of whom recanted. Um, after it was demonstrated that they couldn't possibly have seen the interior of a car driving by uh, in a drive-by shooting. Um, other reasons why people are, are wrongfully convicted and ultimately get out. One is false confessions. That is the biggest one, I think, statistically. Isn't yeah. It? So false confessions, I mean, they're, they're, they're a bit unbelievable that people would confess to crimes they didn't do. But it happens with great regularity, and it happens in part because of the rules. The police are allowed to lie during the interrogation. Um, only recently have states like New York introduced mandatory videotaping now of interrogations. California doesn't have such a rule. Uh, and so there are abuses. In fact, the story we have in the book about the interrogation involved uh, the infamous John Berge of Chicago and uh, physical torture that was routinely going on um, with suspects. Um, inept defense counsel. Uh, counsel who showed up drunk, showed up, who slept through the trial, things like that. Or were just like the one in Lori's trial. <laughs> <laughs> Left something to be desired, yes. Left something to be right. desired. And then a significant element in all of these cases is what Michael Connolly calls tunnel vision. Um, unfortunately, in our justice system, there is a... a, a a morale, a, 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 an ethos that says mm -hmm. it's all about um, convictions. It's all about arrests. It's not about finding the truth. Um, and so when the police have a suspect in mind that there is evidence pointing to that suspect, they start to block out the other evidence, sometimes intentionally, sometimes just subconsciously. They decide this is the suspect. They don't look at other possible suspects. The prosecutors do the same. Um, and this has led to uh, some disasters in terms of the convictions. Now, sometimes it's intentional. 
Um, we've got cases of prosecutors who suppressed exculpatory evidence, knowingly suppressed it. It's kind of mind-boggling to read these things, that these people, they have clear evidence that somebody was miles away. Yes. They have witnesses who are miles away, and they never let it not be known to the defense. It interfered with their neat theory, and it was going to cost them the win. They had enough to win as long as that evidence didn't come out. Um, now, what's happening, there, there are some good signs. Um, the, the, the rate of people being released seems to be increasing. Um, we have the development in some counties of conviction review units that are being set up. Now, unfortunately, most of those are um, in-house units, meaning the Los Angeles County uh, uh, District Attorney's Office has its own conviction review unit that reviews the Los Angeles County District Attorney cases. <laughs> it's not an independent body looking right. at it. Um, it's not like a peer review body mm -hmm. that, that, that doctors have. Um, so, but it's a start, and that's developing more and more locations, and some prosecutors are taking harder looks at some of their cases. Uh, but there's a, you know, it, it, it's a problem for the prosecutors. When the prosecutor decides that they made a mistake, they get shunned by their brothers and sisters in the prosecutorial community. You know, it's like, how could you do that? How could you admit that we made mistakes? And that's really the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that it's a human system, mistakes are made, and people don't want to own up to them. One of the things I, I thought was so wonderful in this book is, for one thing, the Kafka-esque nightmare feel of this. All of these stories have this thread running through them of people who know they're innocent, but are caught up in a machine which they can't control. And that sense of being unable to control your own life is really terrifying. And that's something you really brought out in, in yep. Ray, Ray Taylor's case. Yeah. I, I think as you read through the book, um, that is definitely the message that is the takeaway of um, it, it could happen to me, to me. Because, I mean, most of us do feel that, you know, this is just a really naughty mistake. And honestly, it's, I mean, my guy, Ray Towler, thought this is one of those things that a black guy in his 20s has to go through in the world. And they'll find me not guilty, and I'll go on, and that'll be, the, you know, my life will continue. That is a fatal attitude in yeah. our system. Yeah, pretty much everybody in this in this book mm -hmm. assumed that that the system works. They assumed that this system is fair, and there's no way they can find me. And I know I didn't do it. There's no way they can find me guilty. Right. And their innocence often works against them because yeah. they they don't get. Uh, the legal help that they should have gotten right away. They talk too much. Um, they try and be cooperative, and um, so. And it, now, ten percent of the people in the in the exoneration registry are under eighteen years old when they're first arrested. So, I mean, it's not surprising that they have these attitudes. Um, this is they're not hardened criminals. These are kids. Um, and the other part of the book, though, I mean. We can talk about the, the problems of sort of why they develop and all that. But the other part of the book, and I want Lori to talk about this too, is the discovery of these remarkable individuals. I mean, I've now met 
uh, a number of exonerees, and Laura, of course, works with many of them, and they are the most incredible people. Somebody described them, maybe it was Barry Sheck, as the uh, luckiest unlucky people in the world, but it's not really just luck. They have incredible strength of character. They have managed to focus their emotions, turn off their bitterness and anger, and survive. In some cases, Ray Teller, 28 years in prison, um, and, and And this was for a sex like crime against a child. <coughs> and you know that, that those are 28 really tough years because, uh, I mean, a community of men in a hard prison is not going to be gentle on someone who is convicted of a sex crime against a child. And yet Ray is, is as Les said, not bitter. I, I think that the uh, what's interesting, too, is Les was talking about the arc of story that you created using different parts of stories. We get that sense that um, what Les said, and you are both talking about, that running through this story arc is this kind of strength of character that you really need to preserve. And what's interesting is to see it brought out in so many different ways, in so many different circumstances, and also at so many different income and societal levels. I mean, these are not just all um, people who are economically disadvantaged or living in a bad part of town. I mean, there are people who, uh, for example, Gloria Killian. Gloria Killian, Audrey Edmonds. These are, these are not uh, young black men. No. Um, although that is certainly the largest component of the people who are in the registry. Um, yeah. Now, I mean, it's not going to be the case that everybody who is innocent um, has this strength of character. I mean, obviously, we don't know the stories of people who failed, the people who uh, succumbed and said, you know what, because, for example, when you come up for parole, uh, the, the, the big criteria for, for criterion for parole is, are you repentant? So if you're innocent, you're not saying, you know, I've learned my lesson. I'm really sorry I did what I did. I'm a different person now. You're saying, I'm innocent. Well, the parole board, don't, board doesn't like that. Um, so there's got to be tremendous pressure on somebody who is wrongfully convicted and incarcerated to say after 20 Years. I did it. Maybe just, hey, you know what? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm never getting out of here unless I just say I did it. Maybe <laughs> I should just say I did it and I'll get parole and I'll move on. Um, we don't know about those people. They haven't made it into the registry. They haven't made it through to, uh, to come to our attention. Um, and, of course, there are others who um, just gave up. They, they didn't try to do appeals. They, they just said, you know, I'll just do my time. And the, the sad part is, of course, as is typical of any social problem, is that there's in, inadequate resources to help people, and therefore even the innocence projects have to start to say to people, we can't help you, we can't take your case. You've only got five years left on your sentence. We can't take your case on because it might take five years to go through the process to get you out. Or there's other people who are only 10 years in, and they've got 20 years left on their sentence, and those are the ones we're going to focus on. There are, by the way, there are, there are now something like 63 innocence projects around the country. Uh, San Francisco Bay Area has the NorCal Innocence Project, um, which is a, a terrific organization. That's a little different from Life After Innocence. Life After Innocence, which Laura started. This is a really fascinating project. 
Right, and it focuses almost uniquely. I mean, there's one or two other little organizations like Hearth, but focuses on helping the people who have gotten out and helping them reenter society. We talked the other day to a woman in San Diego. She had been wrongfully convicted of killing her boyfriend, and she was finally exonerated and released. And now she's going through applying for credit cards, and the credit companies have called her and say, well, where were you for the last seven years? I was in prison, you know. The fact that she's innocent uh, doesn't really matter. They see the seven-year blank on her employment history. She, of course, lost her job. Um, she lost, in that case, she lost her kids. I mean, her kids are, her, uh, uh, her kids were taken away from her, and her parents weren't allowed to step up to take care of the kids because she was a convicted felon, and they weren't going to have these rotten parents, grandparents, taking care of them. Uh, she can't get her nursing license back because she doesn't have an official certificate of innocence yet. Uh, those are typical problems. I mean, imagine if somebody took away 20, 25 years of your life right in the middle, starting at the age of 16, 18, 20. When, when Ray, yeah. You know, and you come out, you have no job skills, you have no Social Security benefits. You don't know how to use a computer. Right. It's Cell the phone. legend of Sleepy Hollow. Exactly. Not. You know, uh, one of the things that struck me about this book that's so powerful in this book is the power of story to see the words strung together, to read and experience and immerse ourselves in these different people's stories, and then to put together this kind of patchwork quilt of a story. Um, it's a really powerful experience. And having those stories, those actual words and the beginnings, middles, and ends, uh, to them. That makes a big difference in understanding the impact of this on the individuals. Well, thank you. That's, I mean, Laura describes this as we wanted people to feel like what it was like to be in the skin of an exoneree. Um, and I think the book, I hope the book does that. I should mention, I, I should have said this up front, by the way, this was a project, uh, the proceeds from the book are going to life after innocence. Uh, the authors got a nominal fee for writing. The editors took nominal fees. The exonerees took nominal fees. Uh, and so we're, I've been telling friends, buy three or four copies, you know, give them to your friends because A, we're raising money for life after innocence, but B, we also want to spread the word. We want people to pay attention, as we used to say in the 60s, question authority uh, and uh, wonder about whether those articles um, in the paper that say so-and-so is guilty, so-and-so is arrested, etc., what is the evidence? Uh, it, it, could it be that there was a mistake made? We're not saying that everybody in prison is innocent. We're not saying every prosecutor is corrupt, every police officer is corrupt. We're saying mistakes happen, and when they happen, they should be dealt with. Laurie, when putting together your story, so you started with the transcript and only the transcript. Did yep. you write everything that you wrote from the transcript or did you meet no. Ray first? I, uh, I think I asked for the transcript first because I wanted to read, and obviously I did an online search and they, Laura and um, Les, sent me a number of articles and that kind of thing about him and his story. And so I, I had an idea of his background, his case, his life since then. So I looked at the, at the, uh, transcript, which fortunately for me, although not for Ray, 
was a short trial, um, mm-hmm. which <laughs> only like three days, which made the reading fairly quick. Um, but I, once I had gone through it and marked it up and had questions, I then talked to Ray on the phone. I haven't met him face to face, but I talked with him on the phone, I think three, three different times, and got his story apart from the transcript because he, interestingly enough, didn't remember a lot of the details. But what he did remember were really fascinating things like um, the white socks that his, that his attorney wore. You know, even, even this kid who is sort of working hard to get his AA degree um, at the local college, uh, you know, even he knew that you don't wear white socks with, with a suit. Um, but the, so these little details and the fact that, of course, the transcript doesn't say the ethnicity of the jury. It does give the jury selection and, and follows through it, but um, doesn't, doesn't talk about the ethnicity. And he remembered them as being um, predominantly white, although there were some black faces in there. Um, so things like that were fascinating, and his own, the, the, the things that were important to him, like the fact that they questioned his, his niece, who was a small child about the age of the child that he had been accused of abusing, and, um, and he, he just, he didn't want her to have to be in that courtroom. It really troubled him, the fact that they had made her come in. Um, and the fact that his his mother had to had to come in and and you know they were rude to her and it really troubled him. That's what he remembered. You know, it, it's so interesting to to read these each of these pieces and kind of pull out you know the little tidbits of what is going you know the the where things go wrong in the justice system. And I think you guys do a really good job of organizing this. Uh, so let's tell us about uh, getting all these transcripts and kind of making these assignments that you know Lori's going to come focus on the trial. Laura, fortunately, Laura's um, organization at Loyola, she has some students that work with her, so we, they were able to, with her under supervision, pull together the dossiers that Laura mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Lori mentioned. Um, why, why don't you first say? If you could give us an idea of what those sections were, there's arrest, interrogation, yeah, the let trial. Me see. Uh, so the trial, the verdict, you know, hearing the verdict, um, the experience of, of entering into prison for the first time, um, and then the later chapters focus really on, more on the prison experience. Uh, so we have uh, Ken Winemko. Uh, and his experience of entering prison. Kurt Bloodsworth, sort of how he survived prison. Audrey Edmonds, how she survived prison, how she sort of got through it, Alton Logan. Um, and then we get to um, the community. One of the fascinating things that we found for the book was a previously unpublished essay by Arthur Miller. Oh, that was really interesting. So Miller had gotten involved in the case, uh, there was actually a book about the case called A Death in Canaan. Um, he had gotten involved when this young man, Peter Riley, had been convicted of murdering his mother uh, and eventually put together a committee of supporters, hired a lawyer to help Riley, and ultimately Riley was exonerated. Uh, and then Miller wrote this essay about it called Luck and the Death Penalty, in which he basically 
said, you know, we can't, how can we tolerate a death penalty in a system where the exoneration of a young man like Peter Riley depends on blind luck? Uh, what happened in that case was the prosecutor uh, who had tried the case dropped dead of a heart attack on the golf course. Uh, the new prosecutor who took over going through the files discovered evidence that the original prosecutor had suppressed that Riley had been seen by a state highway trooper um, across town at the time of the murder. Um, and then the last few chapters are about the process of trying to find help for appeals and ultimately the experience of, of being out. Um, Antoine Day talking about the shocking experience of being released from prison only to find himself sort of out on a bus, on a, on a street corner with no money, nobody knew he had been released. Two hours of standing out in the rain, a friend drives by and sees him there and says, Antoine, what are you doing? He's, Antoine joked, I broke out of prison. The friend takes him home, gives him some clothes, gives him some food. He calls his mother, who thinks he's still in prison, and says, no, Mom, I'm, I'm out now. I'm going to come home. And this, you know, the state just sort of said, OK, we're done with you, out the door. And Antoine has put together his own little organization working with exonerees. And he's also a wonderful musician and has put together the exoneree band. Um, and then Juan Rivera, the last chapter of the book, uh, in, in which he struggles every day to sort of deal with the years that he lost. He's now got a baby and, and looking at her and thinking about the future. So we did try to cover the, the whole gamut of the experience. The authors, I think, matching the authors to the writers, to the, to the exonerees, was an interesting process. Uh, some were obvious. Lee Child and Kirk Bloodsworth are peas in a pod. They're both sort of, you know, <laughs> big ex-Marine types, right. uh, and they really have bonded. Um, and uh, uh, Bill Dillon, uh, who acted as his own lawyer, we thought, wouldn't it be fun to put him together with Phil Margolin, who is a criminal defense lawyer, in addition to being a brilliant uh, author of legal thrillers, uh, and to give him the challenge of writing about a guy who acted as his own lawyer. John Mankiewicz, um, not known, not not a well-known name outside of Hollywood. He's a brilliant screenwriter, television writer. Was the head writer for House of Cards. Now he's writing with uh, Michael Conley. He's doing the Bosch uh, series. Uh, and John did a lovely sort of cinematic uh, story about Jerry Miller and his release and the shock of sort of having a press conference and things like that. Going from being you know, just one more piece of dirt in prison to suddenly being in the spotlight. Um, anyway, it was, a, it was a fascinating process, but these are all friends, and I think that every one of the writers has said to us what an incredible experience this was, that, that of the amazing people that they got to meet, the exonerees, uh, and they're just so, this is different from writing a mystery. You know, it's very different. I think I think some of the writers were really quite shocked by what they found as they got into these oh, yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things about this book that's interesting is that it is simultaneously a scary, shocking, depressing, and terrifying because this this book makes it clear that this could happen to anybody at any time for absolutely no reason. But it's also sweet and smart in that we these people did get exonerated they did get out and, and they managed to survive and 
as wonderful human beings. I mean, uh, the the story about uh, Juan was so interesting because he wait, he still wakes up early every morning waiting for the click of his of his wow, jail door. Good. Yeah. Right. And some of them, now, I should say a word or two about compensation. Um, I'm not sure if there's any myths out there about it, but 30 of the states have a system of compensating exonerees. So, first of all, 20 don't. Um, you have no entitlement to any benefits, um, any compensation for the years you spent in prison. Among the 30, many of them have no budget. They have a system, but they have no money, actually, to pay the people. And it takes a long, long time. California has a system of compensation. It's something like seventy-five dollars or $80,000 a year for each year you're incarcerated. But nobody's gotten any awards yet because the program's underfunded. It's taking a long time. Some of the states can't decide how to administer it. A very tiny number of the exonerees will end up with a civil judgment. Tiny number. Um, and most of those who have, they've plowed it back into the movement. Uh, Jeff Deskovic, for example, uh, in New York, has his own foundation, which is designed to work with um, individuals who have been exonerated. Uh, uh, there's a, a young man named Frankie Carrillo in, in Southern California who was exonerated after 20 years in prison. He got a civil judgment. He's running for the assembly. Um, and so on. So there are some wonderful success stories, but some of them are people who got nothing um, and nonetheless managed to get themselves together, go to college, in a couple of cases go to law school. Alton Logan has gone to law school now um, and uh, uh, others. So they are heartwarming stories, but... I, simultaneously, that's what I, what I thought was so interesting. Uh, we would be remiss not to mention the unreliability of the most powerful means of convicting people, which is eyewitness testimony. So many people will point at somebody in the courtroom and say, he did it. And that one moment is so powerful for the right. jury. And there have been studies, I mean, the studies are over 100 years old now about the unreliability of eyewitness testimony. but uh... Particularly when it's complicated by race. Mm. I mean, Ray Towler happened to be a black face in a white room, and the guy who did this horrible crime was a black face in a white park. And so people sort of put him together with it and said, oh yes, it must have, must have been him. Right. But the physically, they were <laughs> completely different. <laughs> when you read this, that's one of the things that is there's a certain sense of absurdity to this too. You read yeah. this and you go, how? But not always. There was just a case in the, in the LA Times, I think, that I, I posted on Twitter um, about a man who'd been wrongfully convicted of a crime. And the guy, they found the doer, and he looks like his twin. I mean, there's mm. no relationship. But uh, the eyewitnesses clearly got it right. Uh, it, just, it just wasn't him. <laughs> but it was a guy that looked almost, I mean, really, it was almost like an identical twin. Uh, yeah, I've heard about this happening. And I, I think that... Uh, one of the things that uh, interested me about this book was the um, the roles that the law enforcement, different law enforcement individuals plays. I mean, the the prosecutors seem to be in a really bad place because they are judged by the number of convictions. And as you say, it's understandable that once they get that tunnel vision going, right. they want to convict. Well, and the same with the police. The mm -hmm. police who are judged by how many cases they cleared. 
Um, cleared means somebody got arrested um, and uh, sent up for prosecution. So it's not did you get the right person, it's did you clear the case? Did you come up with somebody that the prosecutors said, yeah, there's enough evidence, let's go for it? Um, I don't know that we can change that system, but we need to ask questions. We need to say, is this right? And we need, if anything, to change the attitude about that being the goal and have instead, perhaps, maybe this sounds like Pollyanna-ish to say that the goal ought to be the truth. <laughs> oh, you radical, you. Yeah. Well, you know, on the very first page of this book, uh, Scott Turrell writes about uh, Princess H. Marshall, a diehard liberal who believed that the Constitution meant that it, what it said when it gave every defendant a right to trial, and he follows that up in parentheses, a view that's been virtually outlawed by the federal sentencing guidelines, which we're just getting brought back again. Right. Well, another significant problem of our system right now is the tremendous pressure um, for plea bargains. Mm. Uh, a, a lawyer was telling me the other night, um, as we did a program on this, that, that uh, in the federal system, for example, the number of trials has shrunk dramatically, probably down to 25 percent of what they were even 10 years ago, uh, because there are more cases and the pressure is move them out move them out, make a deal, move them out. So, you know, when you're making deals, there's even a stronger likelihood that you're going to make a deal with somebody who's innocent, but they just say, you know what, you know, they have, they have evidence against me. If I go to prison for two years, five years, seven years, it'll be over. And I won't have to go through the ordeal. Well, that's what, you know, Ray, Ray Taller had that laid out in precisely those terms. I mean, up in the judge's office, looking out over the lake and the sailboats, and the guy said to him, you know, you, you could be free. You could be out there on a day like this if you just said, I did it, and let us give you a slap on the wrist. And he, you know, he those said, but I didn't. <laughs> but I didn't do it. Well, I don't know if it would have been even 28 years. I mean, mm -hmm. that's what he spent in prison. Of course, it could have been, but... You never know until until somebody else is convicted. You know, Lori, I'd like you to talk about just um, focusing on the prose in your in your story to reflect Ray's state of mind. Prose, as in the writing. Yeah, the writing. Yeah. Did you did you run this past them? Were, were these stories run past the exonerees themselves? Oh yeah. Yeah, and in, in fact, they even were double-checked by a lawyer. I, I had to talk with somebody to say, now, where did you get this? And can we change that word to this? Because <laughs> Really? Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. we, we, you know, this we, was, we dotted I's and crossed T's all the way along Norton the way. Norton is a wonderful publisher. Um, they hired independent counsel who went through this, and with every one of the stories went through, they fact-checked, they cross-examined the writers, mm -hmm. and in some cases, the exonerees about where did you get the name, and in some cases... Um, names were removed because there wasn't really any evidence that that person had done something wrong. But yeah. There's plenty of uh, wrongdoers on the, right, on the right side of the law in this book. Uh, the, the, there are um, far more crimes committed by the people who are responsible for stopping crimes than there are by any of the people even in the vicinity of these crimes. Yeah. And, I, and I think that talking to Ray... Um, his, I mean, even even a couple of short phone conversations, 
um, his, the, the rhythm of his voice, the kind of person behind um, the, the phone, was fairly strong and obvious. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought it worth trying to get that in to some extent. I think I, I aimed at getting this sense of a fairly gentle guy who was just stood there and watched this bulldozer run him down. Exactly, and, and I think that that's really a, a compelling story. And, you know, one, the story I was also really caught up by uh, Gloria Killen's uh, story. This brings up a theme of one of the things that we see a lot are people who lie to the cops about seeing somebody, and and the, these the bad eyewitnesses in this right. book. Well, in are that case, terrifying. In, in that case, in Gloria's case, the problem was that uh, the witness's testimony was essentially. Purchased. It was purchased by uh, promises of a lesser sentence um, if, if he cooperated. And so he testified against Gloria. He just made it up because it was going to help him. And then the prosecution didn't reveal to the defense that, um, that they had made him a deal, which meant they didn't have the grounds to then challenge him, uh, which they should have done. Um, Interestingly, I mean, only I think only two of the writers that we used, Michael Harvey and Brad Parks, have journalism backgrounds. But we chose people who we thought were great storytellers, um, and because we wanted somebody who could compress the story, make it dramatic, and, and bring it home. And I think you know the writers were just wonderful. I, I mean, that's I did I only wrote the footnotes. I mean, I, <laughs> and the introduction. So, Lori, um, could you talk about? Uh, when you were writing this story, um, could you talk about how the what's happening currently around us? I mean, we're just <laughs> immersed in one case after another where there's videotape of people being killed and apparently murdered by policemen. Um, this is a really interesting, this book sets up a really interesting kind of sense of dissonance with all that kind of news. Sure, because it was being written in the summer of 2016 when Black Lives Matter was really coming strong. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think that you can separate that out from the experience of writing. Mm. Um, even though there was absolutely nothing in the least bit militant from Ray Tyler at the time or, or presently. I mean, he, he just wants to get on with his life. He's happy to just live with his moms and plays with his nieces and, you know, he's got a band and he does some painting and, and, and he just wants to be allowed to get on with it and that's, that's his ideal. This, you know, the, there's a, a fascinating book called Blood in the Water by my friend Heather Ann Thompson just won the Pulitzer Prize in history, about the Attica uprising, which was in the early 80s, 80s and about the massive cover-up there. And the, so the point I'm making in mentioning that book is these aren't new stories. Um, they are, unfortunately, they are ongoing stories. Um, I don't know that there's much less. Uh, I mean, certainly in Chicago, there's no more John Berge. There's probably no more physical torture going on cost the city millions in settlements. 
Um, but I don't think that things have changed, especially in the smaller towns. Um, the relationships among the police and the prosecutors and all that. The new book, edited by Les Klinger and including the work of Laurie R. King, is Anatomy of Innocence, Testimonies of the Wrongfully Convicted. Thank you for joining me, Laurie and Les. Thank you. Rick. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.